hello and welcome to episode three of Layman's Law. My name is Ivy and I'm joined by the wonderful Thani Harat. Hello everyone. Today we're staying close to home and exploring how your rights are protected right here in Australia. Thani, why does Australia need a separate framework? This is the million dollar question, Amy. Article 26 of the Vienna Convention on the Laws of Treaties says that every treaty in force is binding upon the parties to it and must be performed by them in good faith. It all comes down to the fact that we are a dualist country. In contrast to a monist country like Mongolia, where international law automatically becomes part of domestic law and is in fact superior to domestic law, The Australian Parliament must make separate domestic legislation to incorporate any rights that we agree to in the international world. That means that while we have signed and ratified many conventions and treaties, from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights to the Convention on the Rights of the Child, they aren't actually able to be enforced in Australia unless we pass a domestic legislation or a domestic bill of rights. Oh, that's exactly right, Thano. The issue is we don't have a domestic bill of rights. And in fact, we're one of the only liberal democracies in the world that doesn't have one. How do you feel about that, Thano? Look, Amy, I must admit that when I first heard about this, I did think it was a little bit crazy. I mean, it really did challenge me to realise that we're living in a country where we can't claim our basic human rights. But I think it's important to note here that we do have some federal rights that exist across common law, statute and the constitution instead. What are some of these rights in me? So to name a few, we've got an implied right to freedom of political communication, which people often get confused with an implied right to freedom of speech. We've got a right to re-enter the country, a right to vote and explicit freedom of religion. All right, so let's pause there and examine one of these implied freedoms, a right to re-enter the country. Over the last two years, we have seen a significant disruption to this as a result of COVID-19. We've seen countless Australians overseas prevented from returning home. The Biosecurity Act, which was passed by the government early into the pandemic, acts effectively as a legislative bulldozer of common law rights. Exactly right, Thenu. The principle of legality does suggest that this right to re-enter can only be abrogated if the intention to abrogate is specifically made clear in the statute. The Biosecurity Act makes it clear that the government intended to do this. Now, Imi, I'm not going to lie, this does bother me a little bit. I was really, again, challenged by the fact that the executive government can use their emergency powers to restrict such fundamental rights. Of course, there are instances when human rights have to be limited for the effective safety of a community. But let's take the example of earlier in this pandemic, just when the Delta outbreak had started overseas. Australians that were travelling home from India were prevented from coming home. They couldn't even, for example, quarantine for two weeks and be able to reach their family that way. They just were barred from entering the country at all. To me, this is a huge restriction of human rights and was not a proportional measure to the threat that we were facing. I think as George Williams and Daniel Reynolds explain in an article titled The Operation and Impact of Australia's Parliamentary Scrutiny Regime for Human Rights, the Rudd government did attempt to adopt a process that would stop executive overreach. However, there was a big expectation that the Human Rights Parliamentary Scrutiny Act would change things and it ultimately didn't. In fact, I think the government lacked the courage and commitment to adopt effective legislation and that this act was intended to appease the call for a proper human rights bill. 
Yeah, so essentially this creates a committee that examines every act of parliament with respect to the compatibility of human rights via a statement the minister presents to demonstrate this. The idea is that we would then prevent bills from being incompatible in the first place. However, there are reports that say that this procedure has limited impact. Committee reports are often ignored. Ministers don't uphold a high standard as there is no consequence to not following it. There's also the fact that in this case, emergency powers like Cabinet make these decisions without any parliamentary scrutiny. But then, do you think that having a Bill of Rights would actually have made a difference? The reason why I'm not convinced is that we've seen similarly restrictive laws, such as curfew, be passed in Victoria without any consequence. Victoria does have its own Bill of Rights, notably through its charter. Interesting observation, Amy. I think the Victorian Charter does lack strength. When we saw Hugh de Cresta from the Human Rights Law Centre speak a few weeks ago, he said that lawyers and judges don't really actually know how to use it. The Charter does not seem to stand up as a strong instrument against executive power. For example, let's walk through the Victorian curfew. There is a four-arm test to determine whether a certain law is valid if it prima facie goes against the rights contained in the Charter. In this case, Section 12 of the Victorian Charter gives every Victorian a right to move around freely within the state. The curfew was part of a series of laws that restricted these rights. So let's have a look at this forearm test. The first arm of this test is that the law has to be legal. It's pretty clear in this case that it was issued by the Chief Public Health Officer. There are no issues here. Similarly, it has to have a legitimate objective. In this case, there is a pretty legitimate objective that it is trying to protect public health here in Melbourne. Let's move on to the third arm, which is that there has to be a rational connection. This means that there has to be a connection between the objective and the law itself. Now, I know that in the case that was lodged against the curfew in 2020, there were expert evidence presented that said that this does help public health because it helps authorities control the movement of people. Yes, we can take that argument, and I think it's really unlikely that a court will go against an expert opinion like that, but I would like to raise some concerns I have with this reasoning. First and foremost, does it actually decrease the amount of time people, for example, have to shop at a supermarket? Is that increasing density in peak times? Perhaps there is more of a law enforcement mechanism here, but we can't really know whether that was the reason that numbers started to drop this time last year or whether it was because of other public health measures. And I'd really like to see some more critical discourse here rather than just going with one expert opinion. The fourth part of this test is, I think, where the curfew really fails, whether there is a proportionality between the law itself and the objective that it is trying to achieve. So I do admit there is probably convenience here for law enforcement, but are there other ways for us to achieve this? Another measure, for example, could limit human rights less, perhaps closing just supermarkets but letting people go for walks by themselves. So to me, it seems that the laws have been quite differential to the government. Judges don't like to second guess medical experts, and I think for very good reason. But perhaps getting multiple medical experts could have solved this issue. And maybe the court could have pushed the chief health officer to provide further evidence. So you're right, Amy, we need a stronger instrument at a federal level if we expect it to make a difference. I think that if we had a really strong domestic instrument that forced courts to assess the proportionality of certain laws, we would see a more measured and nuanced approach to protection of human rights in Australia. 
I'm thinking specifically about the case of Alcatel, where a stateless man was kept in indefinite detention as a result of refugee laws here in Australia. His home country would not take him back and he was not granted refugee status in Australia. Judge Kirby said in that case, it would take a bill of rights to effectively protect that man's right to freedom. Exactly, Amy. The two main issues considered by the High Court were whether the Migration Act 1958 permitted a person in Arkatab's situation to be detained indefinitely, and if so, whether this was permissible under the Constitution of Australia. A majority of the court decided that the Act did allow indefinite detention and that the Act was not unconstitutional. Therefore, a man, a real person with his own story and loved ones, was kept in detention by our state. To me, this story is enough to show the failure of our domestic protection of human rights. Minorities and those who do not get a vote in our democracy are continuously at risk. Unfortunately, Sofenu, I think that's the really dark reality of the current setup of our legislation is that it's so separate from international mechanisms that there is this gap which vulnerable people continue to unfortunately fall into. And that leads us to the end of our third episode of Layman's Law. Thenu, what have we got coming up next week? Next week, Imi, we're going to be talking about all things equality. And I think that this is an issue that is so, so close to both of our hearts. So please join us then for a really in-depth discussion. See you next time.